0: As we continue our study here in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at the life of David, come to chapter 29. Father, as we consider your word this morning, Lord, we want to come with open hearts and open minds. Spirits, Lord, that you can touch and work through. Lord, we thank you for being such a gracious God as we see a picture of your grace here in the life of David today, Lord, may it stir our hearts. May it cause us, Lord, to just rejoice within ourselves of your gracious hand and gracious ways in our lives. We give you this time now this morning. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. The annuals of church history are filled with stories of men and women who, it seems, were just bent on going in their own direction, running away from God, going on a path leading to destruction, and God, it seems, would in each case just put roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, safety net after safety net after safety net. Seeking to get those people's attention. Seeking to point them in the right direction. Seeking to spare them from that path of pain and destruction that they were heading down. We think of the story of Jonah where God went so far as to have a giant fish, probably a whale, swallow him. Just to get Jonah to go in that direction that God wanted him to go. Not because God needed Jonah, but because God loved Jonah so much that he didn't want Jonah to miss out on this great work that God had for him. Well, here in chapter 29, we see God doing a similar thing in the life of David. And God has done a similar thing in many of our lives. And for some of us, he's done it more than once. As we noted in our study last time, David made a huge mistake back in chapter 27 by listening to his heart. By following his heart, he goes down to the land of the Philistines. He's backslidden. And when David was really, really discouraged, instead of turning to the Lord, he turns to the world. He runs back to Gath once again, and it was there that David, the servant of the Lord, makes himself the servant of Achish, the king of the Philistines. And what transpires is a 16-month period where David basically loses his identity. He loses his sense of purpose. He loses his mission in life. He's leading this double life, constantly trying to cover up for his actions. And during that period of David's life, there was no record of him writing any psalms, There's basically not any real communion that he was having with God. And to a certain extent, David has turned his back on God. But God would not turn his back on David. And so here in chapter 29, we see the graciousness of God to bring back his wayward servant. Let's read here, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the Philistines gathered together all of their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. The Philistines are gathering their armies together here to do battle against Israel. And they're getting all the armies here in ranks. And here we find David in this place where he never thought that he would be. He is lined up with the Philistines to fight against the people of God. Three years earlier, if you would have polled or surveyed or interviewed David and said, you know, where do you think? Where's the last place that you think that you would ever end up being three years from now? David probably would have said, this is the place. The last place I could ever imagine myself being is is lining up with the enemies of God to fight against God's people. And that is often the case when we sin." When we backslide, when we turn away from the things of God, that we can find ourselves in a place that we never thought that we would be. Some have found themselves in a jail cell. Some have found themselves in divorce court. Some have found themselves with a a disease that maybe they didn't, uh, you know, ever think that would strike them. All because of a moment of compromise, a moment of sin. But it's here that we see the Lord is going to intervene in David's life to save him really from a disastrous situation. You see, God is still on the throne and he's not going to let go of David very easily. And so we read in verse three, it says, then the princes of the Philistines here, we're going to see God's intervention said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. And so the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which... You have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands"? The leaders of the Philistines looked at David and his men, lined up with them. And as they looked at them, they, they, they said, these, they, these guys aren't one of us. They're Hebrews. They worship another God. They live in the land that God promised to them. We don't belong together. We don't belong with them. The Philistine leaders could see what David was blinded to. David had begun to think and to act like a Philistine, and he was ready so much so to fight with them against the people of God. To fight with them really in actuality against God. But the Philistine leaders could see that this wasn't right, that David didn't belong with them. F.B. Meyer in his commentary on the life of David said this, it's a very terrible thing when the children of the world have a higher sense of Christian morality and rightness than Christians themselves and say to one another, what are they doing here? That's something that sometimes we can forget is that unbelievers expect Christians to act in a certain way. Unbelievers have certain expectations that they put upon those who claim to be followers of Christ. They expect us to be honest. They expect us to be people of integrity. They expect us to be polite. They expect us to be people of our word. Those who claim the name of Christ, I'm a follower of Christ. Christian means Christ's light. Those who are unbelievers, many of them, they they hold us in a a higher degree of standard. Now, in many ways in our culture, though, the name Christian doesn't mean what it used to. See, we have politicians who call themselves Christians yet have affairs with, you know, aides in the White House and that type of thing. We have businessmen who call themselves Christian, but yet cheat in their businesses. There's actors who call themselves Christians, and yet they, they, they play in movies where they curse, and they're involved in sexual scenes and, and that type of thing. And that, the name Christian has almost become synonymous with American. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. You know, Apple Pie, Chevrolet, and Christianity. You know, that's my thing. And a lot of people, that's, that's the way that they look at it. But it used to not be that way. I'd like to to kind of take it back to where it used to be, that that when people, you know, would look at us, it's like there would be a sense of, you know, hey, that person, you know, I'm expecting them to 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 be like Jesus as much as I know about Jesus, because that's what that name means. I want to be like Christ. It's not a good thing when the world is looking at us and wondering, why are they doing that or why are they in that place? And so the princes of the Philistines come declaring what David should have known all along. He doesn't belong with us. He doesn't belong here. Now, at first, Achish defends David in verse 3. He says, David, he's been with me, and I've found no fault in him all of this time since he defected to me. Now, to hear an ungodly ruler say such a thing should have been a great wake-up call to David. It would be like an ungodly coworker at your work saying to another co-worker, Hey, it's okay if he comes with us, you know, because he's not really a Christian. You know, I've seen the way that he lives. I've been around him. I mean, that's what Achish was saying here. Ah, he's not really like those other Hebrews. David, you know, he's a good guy. He's one of the boys, you know. He can come with us. But the Philistine princes obviously didn't trust David. They didn't want David to be there. God was speaking to David through this, I believe. But David wasn't listening. The princes of the Philistines probably thought as Achish sent David away, Ah, we showed him that stupid Hebrew. But in actuality, God was using them as an instrument to get David where he wanted David to be. Notice in verse 6 it says, Then Achish called and said to David, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with with me in the army is good in my sight. Now, David hadn't been. We looked at that last week. I mean, he had been, you know, massacring the the allies of the Philistines. He's been been going out on these private raids. But Achish didn't know that because David slaughtered everyone, the men, women and the children. But Achish says, hey, you've been great. And for this day, I found no evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in in your servant, as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart." Achish tells David that he needs to go. And David, first off, he he appeals to Achish. He says, what have I done? And it seems here that David is generally disappointed that he's not going to be able to fight with the Philistines against Israel. He's upset that he has caused the princes of the Philistines to be displeased with him. Now, is this the same David who killed Goliath? Is this the same guy has he fallen this far? I mean, could you imagine someone saying to David before the battle with Goliath, excuse me, David, I don't think that you should do that. It might displease the lords of the Philistines if you kill their champion. Can you imagine what David's reaction would have been? He might have said, of course, I will displease the lords of the Philistines. I want to displease the lords of the Philistines, and, and I can't wait to displease the lords of the Philistines. And if I ever stop displeasing you know, the lords of the Philistines, something's going to be wrong. That was a distant memory, though, in this time of backsliding and compromise for David. He's more concerned at this point in his life with the fear of man than he is with the fear of God. The Bible declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It results in a right path. It results in a right direction. It results in right action. The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of man, the Bible says, is a snare. And here David is getting all tripped up in his direction. All tripped up in his motives. All tripped up in his purpose because of the fear of man. But in the midst of all of it, we see the hand of God at work in David's life. Keeping him from doing something that he would ultimately regret. David wanted to fight with the Philistines against Israel, the people of God, but God wouldn't let him. David's heart is in a very, very bad place here. But the great thing is that God has not abandoned him. And we should all praise God for the times that he has kept us from sinning when we really wanted to. That he kept us from going down a path that we wanted to go on, that would lead to destruction. I remember hearing a a pastor talk about an episode in his life. And this pastor, before he was converted, before he became a Christian and then eventually got into ministry, he had been a real drinker. He'd been an alcoholic and a drug abuser. And and, and he was uh, ministering in, in this other city that was far away from where he lived and And he had went to preach at a certain meeting, and it didn't go real well. And he was driving home, and he just was down. He was depressed, and he was just feeling like, you know, man, you know, everything's just going wrong, you know, in my life at this point. And and he gave in to a temptation. He decided that he was going to go and get a beer. And so he goes and he pulls into this liquor store. And again, he's in this place, you know, that is just, you know long way away from where he lived. And he's thinking, oh, you know, so no one's going to know me here. And he's, he goes into this. He's standing there in line in this liquor store. He's got his, you know, bottle of butter, whatever it is. And, and and in walks one of his best friends, another pastor, who also didn't live, you know, in that area. And and he comes walking in, and he sees his buddy, and he's like, what are you doing, you know? They went outside, and he talked, and he ends up sharing. I mean, I'm just going through this difficult time, and, And his friend, you know, I mean, it was a divine appointment. It was a setup by God where God was saying, look, I don't want you to do this. And how many times have we had situations like that occur in our lives where we were going to give in to some temptation? Maybe it's something on the television that comes on and you know you shouldn't watch it, but you're just, you know, going to give in. And all of a sudden the screen gets all snowy and it's like God saying, you know, look, I don't want you to do this. You rent some movie that you know you shouldn't rent, that you shouldn't watch, and your VCR eats it up. And God is saying, you know, I don't want you to do this. And over and over again, God works in our life in that way. Now that pastor, he could have after talking with his friend, you know, went to another, you know, liquor store and, and you know, gave some kid 10 bucks to go get him something. you know, but, but he got the message. He understood that it was God. David could have went on his own and said, you know, I'm going to show Akish how loyal I am. and I'll go attack the, the Israelites by myself. But he doesn't do that. And so we read in verse 11 that David and his men arose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David returns to Ziglag, that city that Achish had appointed for him. And the Philistines line up now to do battle, to prepare to meet Saul. Now, all that happened in chapter 29 should have awakened David. He should have saw God's hand in all of this, but he didn't. Now God is really going to get David's attention. But at what price? What will it take to bring David around? What about you? Maybe you're sitting here today and you have been in an in a issue of your life of, in, in, in compromise. What is it going to take to bring you around? What is it going to take to get your attention? What is it going to take to bring you to a place where it's like, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready to surrender. You, you've stopped me. you put the roadblock up time and time again. What is it going to take? Know this, because God loves David. He will do what it takes. But it's not pretty. Look at chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag. On the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south of Ziglag and attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. And so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power within them to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam and and the Jezreelitess and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. And now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters." David and his men left their families unguarded and unprotected in their moment of compromise when they went to go and join the forces of the Philistines to fight against the people of Israel, the people of God. And upon their return, they find this great disaster. Their city is burned down. Their city is in ruins. Their families are gone. And that is usually the case with sin and compromise. It leaves your family in ruins. It leaves your house divided. It leaves your family taken captive by the enemy. And David and his men, when they see this, they begin to weep. They begin to cry until there was no power within them anymore to cry. They, they, began, they wept so much that, that there was no strength within them to weep anymore. They were all cried out, you could say. Now picture this scene. This is a group of men who are mighty warriors. This is a group of men who were the commandos. This is a group of men, some of which who would be known later on as the greatest fighting men in the history of Israel. These were studs. These were macho guys. And they come to this place where they see the city is burned with fire and it's burned to the ground and and all of their families are missing. And they begin to just sob uncontrollably. They begin to weep until they're so weakened that they can't even cry anymore. These men are broken. Why? They're broken over the loss of their families. And that's often what it takes to break a man of his pride. Unfortunately, I've seen too many men go down that road of compromise and that road of the double life who weren't broken until their families were ruined, until their families were destroyed. What these men do at this point and what a man does in that situation makes all the difference in the world. Will they choose that pathway that will result in any hope of restoration or will they choose the one that leads to further death and despair? Some people, their tendency when confronted like this with the results of their sin is to turn inward and get bitter. They get bitter at themselves. They get bitter at God. They get bitter at those who hurt them. And that root of bitterness permeates the soil of their hearts and that bitterness spreads like poison throughout their whole being. And they subconsciously make a pact with themselves that they're never, ever going to hurt like this again. No more. And they turn themselves off to people and they turn themselves off to God. They're not going to trust God anymore and, and they're not going to trust anyone else for that matter And that path. It leads to death. And they go to their graves, angry, bitter, cantankerous individuals who make everyone's life around them miserable. Some choose to look inward and get bitter, some, they turn outward, they look for someone to blame. I'm in this mess, and it's not my fault, it's their fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's that person's fault. And they're looking for someone to get mad at, someone to blame. That's what David's men do here in verse 6. They look at David, and it's like it's all his fault. And they're ready to stone him, they're ready to kill him. They turn to David, and we're talking about stoning him instead of dealing with their own hearts. Because they willfully followed David down into this situation. They willfully followed David into the land of the Philistines. And this problem of looking at others and looking for someone to blame, I mean, it dates back to the days of Adam there in the garden. You remember Adam? He ate the forbidden fruit, he realized he was naked, he went and hid himself, and God comes looking for him. Not as an arresting police officer looking for someone who has broken the law, but as a heartbroken father. He's calling out, my son, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I'm over here I'm hiding because I found out that I was naked and God says well how did you know and he says well I I did what you told me not to do I ate of that that fruit and God says well why did you do it and Adam says because it's the woman it's the this woman that you gave me it's her fault really it's your fault because you brought her here you're the one that gave her to me And people do that. They want to blame. They want to point the finger at at someone else. They want somebody else to get mad at. And this path leads to disaster because it means that it's going to take another loss, another tragedy, another home wrecked until they come to their senses. So some turn within and get bitter, some turn outward looking for someone to blame. But the wise man and the wise woman, they turn to the Lord. And that's the path that leads to life. Now, it took David 16 months. It took a severe tragedy where he almost did the thing that he never, ever would have wanted to do, fighting against the people of God. It took him losing his family. It took his home and his city being destroyed. But David finally Turns to the Lord. Notice the end of verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. These men are looking to stone David and he's not there trying to, you know, win him over. He's not trying to use his charisma. He's not trying to say, come on, guys, we can get him back. He's not trying to do anything of that. David goes away and he strengthens himself in the Lord. We're not told what he did, but it probably involves some repentance. It probably involved some confession. David goes and he seeks after the Lord. And this is what matters the most. Listen closely. Oh, it's not recovering your family. It's not recovering the ministry that you lost. It's not recovering the business that was destroyed. It's not recovering the friendship that was ruined by the sin, by the compromise. What matters the most is recovering that relationship with God. Getting right with the Lord. In his book, The Making of a Man of God, Alan Redpath calls this chapter in David's life, he calls it a return to sanity. And David comes to that place when he Is strengthened in the Lord when he turns to the Lord, that he comes back to his senses. It's like the prodigal son who goes away, spends his whole fortune, and he ends up in a pig pen feeding pigs. He's in the, he's there, you know, so hungry that he's looking at the pig slop and thinking that looks pretty good. And then finally, it says he came to his senses. He woke up. He begins to understand that man, my life is a mess, and I've I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my father. I've gone in the wrong direction. I've gone in the wrong path. And he comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to tell my dad I'm not fit to be your son, but please let me be one of your servants. And his dad was waiting there with open arms for him. You know, too often, though, that never happens. You see people who, because of their sin and because of their compromise, they've lost their families. They've lost their ministry But instead of really surrendering their hearts to the Lord, instead of really repenting of their sin, they just kind of go through the emotions. There's emotion, there's tears, there's anguish. They seem sincere, but in actuality, they don't stop the drinking. They don't stop hanging out with the the people who got them in that mess. They don't break off the relationship totally that, Caused all of the problems. They keep a stash of drugs in some secret place. Just in case this doesn't work out. Just in case, you know, God doesn't come through. They keep the number in the wallet of their drug dealer. Instead of really, really surrendering to the Lord. Our, some guys on our staff were talking the other day about why is it at crusades and at outreaches and that type of thing. That there's so many people that come forward to make a recommitment to the Lord. Now, I know some of those people, you know, they got saved back when they were 11 and and they, you know, walked away from the Lord. And maybe they were, you know, so young or whatever that they really didn't understand what it really meant to be a Christian. They didn't follow through. But a lot of times it's people that, you know, they they're making that same recommitment three months ago or four months ago or a year ago. Why, why is that? I think the answer is, is that a lot of people just really, really don't fully surrender to the Lord. They don't come to that place where it's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready, God, to turn from my sin once and for all and to walk with you. I'm ready to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And there's a moment of conviction in their life where there's a confession. There's sorrow. There's, oh, I'm, you know, I wish I hadn't have done that. But there's no follow through. And too often in our culture today, many people are looking for a, a quick fix. Sometimes I have... Men, sometimes women, mostly men, that'll come to me and say, what is it going to take for me to regain my family's trust after they have done something to totally lose it? What is it going to take? And I tell them it's going to take three to six months of you consistently walking with God, of you consistently following after the Lord, of you consistently showing change in these areas where where you you have been playing games and you've been fooling around and you've been living in rebellion. And it's going to take that. It's going to take three to six months, maybe even a year, for your family to see that you are really, really serious, that you are really, truly surrendered to the Lord. But a lot of times they don't want to hear that. But that's the bottom line. It's them and God. God. When I was pastoring in Oregon, I had a guy that came to our church. He was there about three months, and he was always there with his son, and he came a lot. He was there on Sundays, there on Wednesdays, and seemed really committed. And one day he made an appointment to come and see me. And I, you know, thought he was a pretty neat guy, and I didn't really know his story. And he told me, he says, you know, I've wrecked my life. He says, about a year ago, I, I walked out on my wife. We had this, this big argument, and, and, uh, and, and I just left I told her if she wanted to come, fine. If not, I was moving, and, I, and he left the area where they were living, and he just walked out, and he said, you know, she hasn't talked to me since. I don't know what to do. I've wrote her, and I've, you know, told her I was sorry, and she is just bitter. It was like the final straw, and I, I don't know how to win her back. And I said, you know what? You focus on your walk with God. You get close to the Lord. You build your relationship with Him, and you let him deal with your wife. You get right with Him. You, you just spend time just really focusing and growing in Him. And that's what He did. And man, for three years, this guy, he just got really involved in the church and in fellowship, became a real student of the Bible. And God was doing this just great thing in his life. And one day he came to me, he says, you know, Rob, I don't think I can, you know, handle it anymore. My wife is still just, she's not talking to me. She wants nothing to do with me. And I'm I'm really thinking about, you know, filing for divorce because I think that's, you know, what she really, really wants. And I said, well, let's just give it a little bit more time. Let me write her a letter. And I wrote her a letter and I and I just said, I just want to I don't know you, but I just want to tell you what I've seen in three years in your husband. A change that has taken place. And I said, If you are at all interested in you know talking about this, please, you know, call me. It took about two months. And she finally called. Today they're married again, doing well. But it took that guy saying, you know what? Okay, I'm going to give her to God and I'm going to just focus on my walk with the Lord. People spend years wrecking their lives, breaking trust, and they want it to be fixed in one week in a few counseling appointments. So often that's the case. But listen, you can be right with God in a moment if you really, truly repent. But it's going to take time for those that you have hurt, for those scars and those wounds to be healed. David does the right thing here. He strengthens himself in the Lord. Before even seeking guidance from the Lord, he goes to the Lord. And as David turned to the Lord brokenhearted and full surrender, God was more than ready to supply David with the strength and the courage and the assurance that he needed. One thing to note here, too, where we see the the grace of God in this situation is that the Amalekites, they were known, they had a reputation for being savages in battle. Because part of their battle strategy is they would go and they would attack the army that they were, were going to be fighting against. They would attack the rear. Or they would attack the camp where where the women, the 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 weak, the older people and the children were. And they would go and do a surprise attack and they would attack the defenseless women and children, the older people and the weak people, in order to just emotionally pulverize the army that they were fighting against when they looked back and saw that their wives and their children and their grandparents were being massacred. And that was their mode of operation. But here we see that they go in, they attack Ziglag, they burn it to the ground, but instead of killing everybody, they... Take him captive. That was out of character for them. I think that was the hand of God in this situation. And so we read here in verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them without fail and recover all. And so David went, and he and his 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook of Bezor. This is what happens to a man when he has the confidence of God being with him and God being behind him and the confidence of knowing that he's right with God. David is on a mission and he's going full bore so much so that 200 men are just like, man, we can't keep up anymore, David. And David says, "Okay, you guys stay behind. Guard this post and the rest of us, we're going to charge. The rest of us, we're going to go. And that's what happens here. And so we read in verse 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And so when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. For he had eaten no bread, nor drunk, nor water for three days and three nights. And then David said to him. To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. When we made an invasion of the southern area of the Chisraelites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned the city of Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? And so he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. And when they had brought him down, they were spread out over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. The word twilight here is actually a poor translation. Really, it was from dawn to dusk is a better translation here. And, and this was smart of David because what he did was he waited for the Amalekites. I mean, they're getting all drunk and they're getting all loaded. You know, they're just having a big party and he lets them go to sleep. And then he attacks them in the morning, you know, when they would be, you know, have hung over from the night before. And this was smart of David. So he attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which had been taken from them. David recovered all. And then David took all the flocks and herds which they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. God's promise proved true. When David inquired of the Lord in verse eight, the Lord promised you shall surely overtake them and without fail, recover all. And that's what happens The promise was fulfilled exactly, but listen, it wasn't. It wasn't fulfilled as David sat back passively and said, all right, God, you can do it. The Lord fulfilled his promise, but he used David's actions to fulfill it. He used David, believing and walking and trusting in that promise to bring about the fruition of it. God's promise didn't exclude David's cooperation. The promise invited David's cooperation. And David cooperated with God, trusting in the promise of the word of God. And he recovered all. And the same thing is true of us. God says, will you believe in me? Will you trust in me? Will you walk with me? Will you cling to me? This is my promise to you. And as we believe that, we cooperate with God as we believe that and we walk with God. To see the fruition of that promise in our lives. And this story is a beautiful story of the grace of God intervening in a man's life. Intervening in a group of of people's lives to, to do, you know, the Bible says that God is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And God has done that in many of our lives. And he does that here in David's life. The time that which the locusts had eaten, God was able to restore. And even more so, David recovered all. Now, as I look at this story, especially the last part of it here, it makes me think a bit of Jesus. I'm reminded of our Lord, that all that was lost by sin, our glorious Lord, our victorious captain has recovered all. What is his spoil? Jesus told the story of a man walking through a a field where he finds a treasure. What does he do? He goes and he buys the field so that he could get the treasure. The field represents the world. The treasure is you and I. And Jesus went to battle. He went to the cross. He laid down his life to recover all. All that was lost by Adam, Jesus has recovered. Listen to these words of C.H. Spurgeon. He says, "Let your hearts and minds and all we are and all that we have be yielded up to him, and let us say of all of it, this is Jesus's spoil, and to him be glory forevermore." We should come to Jesus with our free will and give him everything that we have and everything that we are. We should say of our lives, this is Jesus's spoil. This is what he purchased. This is what he wanted. We should give him our gifts, our abilities, our talents and say this is Jesus's spoil. We should give him our possessions, our house, our home, our businesses and say this is Jesus's spoil and Surely we should give him our praise. To say this is Jesus's spoil. This belongs to him. We should give him our time. We should give him our resources. That this is Jesus's spoil. I'll close with this. David in verse 13 asked the Egyptian man that they found two questions and I want to close with these today. The first one he asks is this, whom do you belong And I ask that question to you today to consider, who do you belong to? Is it Christ? Is it the Lord? Are you a follower of his? Are you his servant? And is it seen by your actions and the way that you live your life? Can others tell that you're different? Whom do you belong and where, secondly, are you from? Where have you been hanging out? This week in your free time, this week as you, you know, the the time that you have spent, where, where are you from? Where have you been? What have you been doing? What have you been involved in? Is it that which would be the mark of a person who would say, I belong to Jesus? I belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. For being so gracious. We thank you Lord for being so incredibly. Patient with us. We thank you Lord for the time. The times Lord where you have been so. Good to put a roadblock in our path. To put a net be. Low our feet. When we were so bent on going. In a direction that would only cause us harm. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. I'd like everyone just to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for a minute. This story is really a lesson for us in God's grace and His forbearance. And I ask you this question What has God been doing in your life to get your attention? Has he put a few roadblocks in your path to wake you up? Have they woke you up? Have you come to that place of understanding that, man, this is not the direction that God wants me to go. It took David almost losing it all. His family, his purpose, the kingdom that would be his. Before he finally came to that place of surrendering. When my daughter Amy was little, she used to always she was fascinated with light sockets and she you know would crawl up and she'd want to, you know, put her fingers in there or stick things in there, and I would spank her hand, I'd pull her away, I would tell her no. And she'd go do it again. I'd spank her again, and she got a lot of spankings over, over that light socket. But you know what? Now she's 11 years old, and she's not interested in sticking things in light sockets. And she's come to learn, she's come to understand that, that what Father says, He says because He loves me, because He wants the best for me. Have you learned that? Are you still resisting? Still fighting? Still going down that path where God has been putting up that wall of resistance, but you just keep breaking through, bent, determined to go in your own direction. Can I encourage you today to stop? You know, some people learn that what God says and what God does and the direction that he gives is true and right Others, they've got to be shocked several times before they figure it out. Don't be one of those. As we close this morning, if you're here today and maybe you've never ever given your life to Christ, you've never really surrendered your heart to the Lord, oh, you've maybe played church a time or two, but you've never really said, God, I want you to have my life and I'm tired of doing my own thing and I do believe That you know what's best for me, and that's why you sent your son to come and die for me, and I want to live for you. I want to encourage you today as we sing this song to just make that profession of your faith today by just getting up out of your seat and coming and standing down front here or kneeling if you would like. And I want to lead you in a prayer. Maybe you're here today, though, and you have rebelled against God, you've turned from Him. You've been doing your own thing and God has been trying to get your attention And to this morning is another example. This story of David, where God has been saying to you, look, what is it going to take? Stop. Come to your senses this morning and you'll find like that prodigal son, a father who is waiting with his arms outstretched to welcome you back home. But don't let it just be in a a moment of conviction, but let it be a moment of determination, a moment of commitment to say to God, God, I'm tired of not trusting you and not believing you. I'm surrendering it all to you today. That's you this morning. You too, get up out of your seat and just come and stand or kneel in the front here. And I want to just lead you in a prayer you would begin to walk with God, to live for God. And trust the Lord concerning whatever that situation is in your life, that His timetable is best. God is good. He is so gracious to us. He's intervened in our life many, many times. And those of us who know Him here that are walking with Him. We know that to be true. Let's, let's tell Him. Let's express our heart to Him in this song of just how much we love the Lord.